Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host. And if you don't already know, Squawk stands for Student Questions at Calvary College. And this semester, we've been dealing with a lot of different topics that have to do with worldviews, cultic mindsets. We've covered topics like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Scientology, Christian Science, and more. And if you haven't heard them yet, we've even covered the history of Calvary Chapels and the Jesus Movement. Most recently, we spoke about the new Apostolic Reformation, but we took a break last week, as I noted in our previous post, because it was spring break at Calvary College. This podcast is generally designed to follow the semester. Our topic today, in light of the fact that we have Easter coming up this Sunday, is, of course, going to be about Easter. Now, there are a multitude of topics we could have talked about at this point, the first being, of course, Good Friday and what is called the Passion of Christ, the Death of Christ, and all of the things that led up to that. But rather than that, I wanted to delve into the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And so while my co-host Brian is not able to be here today, specifically due to some of the duties he has this week regarding Easter, I am in studio by myself. I've brought along some companions, but they are in print. And so I'm going to be giving you some information specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, I want to give you some tools that perhaps aren't already in your tool belt. Some resources, that's something that we like to do here at Calvary College, is to provide you with resources that will help you apologetically. It would probably be an understatement to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a disputed fact. I would say that perhaps it is the most disputed fact not just in Christianity, but as far as facts go. When you're involved in discussions with your friends, be they atheists, agnostics, Jews, skeptics, general populace from unknown backgrounds and unknown religious affiliations, if you are to share Christ with them, it always comes down to one particular fact, and that is whether or not they are willing to believe and be converted specifically by accepting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the spiritual truths that are associated with it. Therefore, as people have attacked this truth, there's been a whole body of assertions that I'm sure as Christians, and if there are non-Christians listening, you have probably heard, and unfortunately, maybe some of you have bought into that. I want to talk a little bit about those things today, and I also want to point you to some resources that are going to give you more to chew on and to lead you in a direction that will not only help you in your faith, but will help you be able to share your faith. Now, of interest, when I first started thinking about this topic and how I wanted to present it today, I thought, you know, I'm just going to do a quick internet search just a one-pager, just to see what I pull the very first time. And I didn't even use Google. I just wanted to see what was out there. And so I used Bing, probably not my favorite search engine. I was in Microsoft Edge. I thought, ah, let's give it a try. Surprisingly, when I type in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Bing has this little assistant, at least in the way my browser settings are configured, it has this little assistant that popped up with a note on the right side. And more browsers are doing that. I think Google now has an AI assistant that's called Bard and a couple of other things. 
But I looked at the assistant, and this is what it said, which I was surprised at its specificity. It says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the Christian belief that God has raised Jesus on the third day after his crucifixion, starting or restoring his exalted life as Christ and Lord. According to Christian theology, it provides the foundation, speaking of the resurrection, for that faith as commemorated by Easter, along with Jesus' life, death, and sayings. The resurrection was a literal, physical raising of Jesus' body from the dead. After his death, Jesus' body was wrapped in linen cloth and placed in a tomb with a large stone rolled across the opening. When Jesus rose from the dead, he confirmed his identity as the Son of God and his work of atonement, redemption, reconciliation, and salvation. Now, I was shocked at not just the specificity of that answer, but also the theological alignments that it showed, because there are Christians, people that are not necessarily literal interpreters of Scripture, who do not accept that. Now, we know that according to Scripture, if you do not accept the physical resurrection of Christ, that you are not within the faith. However, there are people who claim to be Christians, neo-Orthodox, etc., who have a vastly different understanding of the resurrection of Christ. That's even present in a lot of Christian scholarship with quotes applied. So this was a pretty amazing thing because I think we would be hard-pressed to find even those who consider themselves part of the faithful able to articulate as succinctly and as clearly an explanation of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. Now that should be a challenge to you because if there's any part of your faith that ought to be bedrock, it is this. And we'll talk more about that as we get to the end of the podcast today. Why is it that that doctrine is so important? If you don't already know, be sure to stay tuned because we're going to tell you that directly from Scripture. So after I'd found the Bing answer, I thought, no, that's really interesting. I'm going to go and check out somebody who's clearly got some skin in the game on this. So I went to Moody which is now, I believe, Moody Church and Moody College and a lot of other things. Their statement says this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. The event, which occurred almost 2,000 years ago, is the best attested fact in human history and experience. So I thought, oh, well, that is an excellent assertion. That's why I like this particular definition. So they're saying that it's not just a belief but it's a belief in a factual event. This is a very important differentiation. In some of your conversations, and probably in many of your conversations, people will say, well, that's what you believe, or that's your opinion, or that's your truth. And this is where you can go against the grain on what is called the postmodern or the deconstructionist view on the topic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's not just your opinion, it's not just your truth, it's not just something that you believe. And here's a, here's a very good tool to give you. Simply because someone's opinion has been stated does not mean that stating an opinion automatically puts you in a juxtaposition with the truth. In other words, I may have an opinion because it originates with me, but that does not keep it de facto, from being true. But I want you to be able to defend against that when say, well, that's something that you believe, and therefore it's not true. Does that mean that you can't believe things that are true? This is one of those help me understand moments. So that means I can only believe things that are not true. 
My exercise of belief cannot be exercised in factual things. There are a multitude of arguments for those of you particularly who are apologetically geared that I'm sure are springing to your mind right now, and that's the entire point of this. Be willing to challenge the assertions of those individuals who are coming from this position that there is no truth that is absolute. Of course, except for the statement that they just made. So as we continue to delve into this, they say it is the best attested fact in human history and experience. And we're going to talk specifically about two scholars, Christian scholars, who have delved into this subject perhaps more deeply than almost anyone else in scholarship. Moody just comes right out and asserts this on their website. And then it says this, the resurrection of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament and by Christ himself. During the 40 days following his resurrection, Jesus showed himself to be alive from the dead by many, and it uses quotes here because this is stated specifically in Scripture in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, many infallible proofs. He appeared at various times and places to many people who told others what they had seen. And this is according to Luke chapter 24, verse 33 through 43, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Christ's resurrection has been at the heart of the church's message from the day of Pentecost to the present. By rising from the dead, Jesus Christ demonstrated that he had cleansed the guilt of our past and is able to help us in our present lives. His resurrection assures us that our future is safe and secure, speaking of us in terms of believers. Without Christ's resurrection, we would have no salvation from sin and no hope for our own future resurrection. The empty tomb is proof of Christ's deity. It guarantees the future resurrection of believers. The resurrection of Christ also provides believers with spiritual power today. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence that God will one day judge the world in righteousness. In other words, Christ's resurrection, being the proof of him being exactly who he claims to be, is, in fact, the ultimate validation for all that he taught. It's the main reason why we believe him. If one believes that particular fact, which is the heart of the gospel, all other aspects of Scripture and its teachings flow from that. If Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be able to forgive sin, claimed to have power over death and hell, claimed to be able to raise those that were his, he proved it simply by rising from the dead. That, of course, connects back to the very earliest promises that God ever gave in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve, that he would send one who would crush the serpent's head, though his heel be bruised. So this, in one moment, connects all of Scripture, the messianic passages that display these foreshadowings of Christ's life, sometimes in very explicit language. All of these things literally came to life when Christ stepped out of that grave. Hence, it is the cornerstone of the Christian faith and is the thing about which you must be most assertive when it comes to asking others to join you in your faith. It is what Paul himself said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Why? For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then just a few verses later in Romans ten thirteen, he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, if these truths 
are resonating in a human heart. That human being is able, if willing, to call out to God, telling God, I believe these truths in that I have accepted the payment of Jesus Christ for my sins. I've accepted the resurrection of Christ as testament to my new life in him. And I'm asking specifically for those things so that I might be at unity with God, having my sins forgiven and having an eternal hope. All of those things put on the table. We're going to talk a little bit more about what current scholarship has been saying. But I do want to actually recap some of the things that you may have heard. Some people say, well, Jesus wasn't even real. This is no longer accepted by the scholarly community. The denial of the historical Jesus that effectively started in the 1830s with a book brought out by a German scholar demanding corroborating evidence of the reality of Christ has long since been answered. So for those of you who may have friends who in their ignorance, both of scholarly consensus and of their own supposed intellectual tradition, deny the reality that Jesus ever existed, that is an easy conversation to win, and there's plenty of resources that you can use to do so. Bart Ehrman, one of the most outspoken New Testament scholars and critics and an atheist, states very clearly in a number of his lectures that you can find online that that is no longer not just a popular position, it's no longer a intellectually honest position. The historicity of Jesus Christ has long since been proven. And so this person that may be denying that to you, they haven't been doing what they say they've been doing, and that is approaching this from such an intellectual position that they deny the reality of Jesus altogether. Despite their claims of intellectual superiority, you might want to encourage them to simply look at people who are actually professional scholars who do this for a living. Number two, perhaps you've also heard statements that even if someone's willing to acknowledge the reality of Jesus, that he was just a good man, that he was a prophet, some religions will say that, like Islam will acknowledge him as a prophet, among other things, but they will not acknowledge him to be God, and they will not acknowledge him to be the Son of God. In fact, one Muslim scholar actually goes so far as to say the whole purpose of Jesus coming back, which they don't deny, they acknowledge the second coming, but they say that the entire purpose of him coming back is to tell everybody that he's not really God. I thought, well, he certainly picked a very strange way to do that if one believes the book of Revelation. Those are just some of the things that you may have heard. There are, in addition to that, other religions, as well as those who might take a supposedly intellectually superior position, only to be proven wrong by the consensus of scholarship, there are those who are willing to acknowledge Jesus was real, Jesus has some form of deity, but they're not willing to acknowledge that he is fully God. In other words, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity as is taught in Scripture. All of these are divisions that are extremely important when dealing with the identity of Christ. You say, well, those sound like they're really hard to diffuse. They're not really as hard as they sound. And the reason for that is this. The reason why these are important things is because, number one, if Jesus didn't exist, then there's no point in having the conversation. Number two, if Jesus existed but he was only a prophet, then again, there's absolutely no basis or foundation for Christianity except for his teachings, and it therefore has no connection to the supernatural. Number three, if someone's willing to admit the first two, Jesus existed and he was a prophet, but they're not willing to admit his deity, and not in some type of bifurcated or compartmentalized deity as you might find in the Mormons or in the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that he's Michael the Archangel, or that he became Michael the Archangel, 
or that he's a created being. Old time Arianism, basically, that we're going to deal with later on in our section for Cults and Solutions 2.0. We're going to be talking about Arianism, but I'm going to save that for a later day. Jesus's identity, as spoken of in Scripture, being not just the Son of God, but God the Son, is eminently important. One, if he were not God, then he could not apply a perfect ransom for our souls. There's no man that doeth right, the Bible says, no man that is just upon the earth that doeth right and sinneth not. So even Jesus as a sinless man, as they purport him to be, his payment, if it were not supernatural, would only be sufficient to potentially pay for another life, but not for the sins of the entire world. It's a life for a life, but an infinite life is able to provide a ransom to God for all those who will ever and have ever lived. And this is a very important distinction when it comes to the effect or the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was not just an ordinary life that he gave. It was his life, which he says, I give for the life of the world. No other man can make that claim. No one who is simply a man can make that claim. And so as you talk to these various groups that have these various compartments of denial, maybe moving closer and closer to the truth, some even acknowledging the resurrection of Christ, but do not properly understand the identity of Christ. All of these fall short of the plan of the gospel as is clearly articulated in the New Testament. So in any one of these camps, there is plenty of information. The one that you might have the most doubts about is probably the one that denies the reality of the resurrection altogether. And that's why I've chosen to focus on this. As Christians, if there's any doctrine, and I've said this before in the same podcast, if there's any doctrine about which we must be equipped, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's the game changer. That's the proof. One of the most preeminent scholars on this is a man by the name of Gary Habermas. Now, by saying that he's a preeminent scholar, we are not endorsing everything that he's written, everything that he said, nor are we agreeing or intending to create controversy in trying to find some point of contrast between us and him. But rather, we're looking specifically at a large amount of work that he has done in a what's called a critical analysis of the doctrine or of the teaching of the resurrection. What has happened is that he is an American scholar, he is a philosopher, that's where the majority of his education lies, and so in philosophy he has applied logic and a critical process, a historical critical process to the data that's available. Now, you say, well, that's a weird thing to do. It's yielded very important results. And that is, it has allowed people who are not within the Christian faith to, through secular mechanisms, evaluate the veracity, the truth of the sources upon which Christians base their faith, and to provide a secular confirmation, a consensus that these things are real events. Now, before anyone gets up in the air about this, I want you to think about this concept. This does not mean that Christians need that kind of verification in order for us to believe the Bible. I certainly hope that we're not in that boat. But what it does mean is that it builds a bridge for us to talk to people who are constantly demanding evidence of confirmation of what we believe. Now, as already discussed, probably 90% or more of the people who demand this, number one, they're not demanding this because they have searched 
the great truths and the mysteries of faith, and they have decided that there's a hole in it. It's because they watched a TV show, they watched a YouTube video, they saw somebody rip up a Christian who didn't know what they were doing, or maybe argue with somebody who said they were a Christian, didn't know what they were talking about, and they're like, man, this is going to be fun. Man, it's, these people are pushovers. I'm just going to go for it. And what you'll find is that they'll be able to regurgitate a few arguments for the first few minutes of conversation. But if you really know what you're talking about, that conversation is going to take a completely different turn. And it could potentially result in not your faith being overwhelmed by these incredibly intellectually superior arguments, as they claim, but by their unbelief being presented with a set of facts in which they can exercise faith. And that's the entire point of this. But Habermas has been working on this type of research since the 1970s, as far as I can tell, if not before. And I believe it's what he actually did his, his doctoral dissertation in. One of his theories that he uses as a critical mechanism to evaluate evidence and to make arguments for it is called the minimal facts case. Now, with the qualifications I've already provided, this does not mean that we believe that other parts of the Bible are not true. It doesn't mean that Habermas believes that other parts of the Bible are not true, nor his compatriot that we're going to discuss in a few moments, Michael Lacona. What it does mean is that there are facts on which a large number of scholars of all backgrounds actually agree. A heterogeneity, as they call it, a mixed bag of people. And you say, well, why is that important? Because it means that people without the potential bias of faith or religion in what it is that they're trying to make a case for have nonetheless made a case for it. Some of these people might even be antithetically opposed to belief in Christianity and yet cannot deny the bedrock of the historical evidence for the claims made by Scripture. That is a very powerful bridge because it means that there is a bridge from history that has been attempted to be destroyed by so many different people, a bridge from history directly into the present through modern and ancient scholarship that testifies to the veracity of at least three things. Now, in the historical disciplines and in the logical disciplines and mathematics, there are what we call gradients of certainty and uncertainty. I'd be willing to stick my neck out on because there's so much evidence for them and the evidence is of such a great quality that the evidence is going to be able to speak for itself. And out of all the things that might be able to be said from Scripture about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a triumvirate. There are three minimal facts, in other words, facts that have a large scholarly consensus that are drawn from the Christian narrative that are practically indisputable as historical events and have been written about broadly in the scholarly community sufficiently to be able to be discussed at length and verified with the best mechanisms that we have available. Now you say, oh, this is getting too crazy. This is getting too intellectual. This is your best friend because you don't have to be sitting in those seats. You don't have to be an intellectual. You don't have to have gone for school for half your life to be able to use these things in a very simple application and to call the bluff of people who may be intellectually opposed to you or say that they're intellectually opposed to you when really they just have a couple of pain points that they need to get cleared up before they're willing to be open to the witness of Scripture. So the minimal facts are this, and these are repeated both in Habermas's work 
and Michael Lacona's work. Number one, Jesus died due to the process of crucifixion. Number two, very soon afterward, Jesus' disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the resurrected Christ. Number three, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus also experienced what he thought was a post-resurrection appearance of the risen Jesus. And you might be thinking, oh, well, of course, yeah, that's easy, but I could think of 50 other things. Of course you can, and you should, because we're deriving our faith directly from Scripture, not, not from scholarly consensus. But again, this is to help you help someone else step into these facts with enough certainty to start their journey of faith. A very important thing. People say, oh, there's no evidence for your faith at all. You say, wrong. The Bible says this, and guess what? There is a large amount of scholarly consensus, almost unanimity. It means almost everybody agrees that these things are real historical events. In other words, Jesus absolutely did die on the cross. That's a historical fact. All of the scripture that talks about it matches exactly what one would expect. You can read more about this in Lee Strobel's investigation and The Case for Christ. It's a great film. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. And then two, the book is always better than the movie. Jesus' disciples had experiences, and these things have been forensically verified And that if one did have such an experience, it would be described in a genuine manner exactly as it might be described in the New Testament narrative. In other words, eyewitness accounts have a very specific ring, and they can be identified. Police and highly trained detectives, they do this all the time. Investigators and a number of them have applied their skills, their critical skills, to the narratives of the New Testament. And there's books that have been written about that that I don't have time to get into. But they have applied their skills, and they have found that these have the direct ring of truth. In other words, not just what they were saying, but how they were saying it. It matched exactly with what one would expect of someone who was an eyewitness of this event. The event and its identity was less important than establishing that this was actually an eyewitness account and behaved exactly like it. This gives an extremely strong argument to the fact that if it behaves exactly as an eyewitness account should— it is almost certainly a case where the person is talking about an event that they actually experienced. There was no doubt in the minds of the disciples that they had actually seen the risen Christ. Now, one can still choose to disagree with them, but to do so, one must go against a large stack of evidence of the veracity of these claims and the manner in which they were made. We, again, don't have time to get into all of that, but it also involves the inclusion of women as eyewitnesses and corroborating accounts. Number three, the third thing is, again, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus. This stands very strongly as well, because this is a man, by all accounts, who was absolutely diametrically opposed to the idea that Jesus was God until he's confronted, and he does a complete about-face. So what you have, effectively, is a hostile witness becoming one of the most foremost advocates for the faith. And historically, you can't argue with the authorship of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which make up a bulk of the New Testament books, although Luke's work, I believe, has a higher word count when you combine Luke and Acts than all of Paul's writings put together. Paul, nonetheless, wrote the majority of the books of the New Testament. So these three things together have been examined by scholars to find out, can I poke a hole on that narrative? Can I poke a hole in the passage where it's at? Did the person who said that they wrote it actually write it? All of the critical processes that are there 
And so what this means is that these few portions of Scripture have been extremely scrutinized, and they have withstood the scrutiny, and they have been preserved in scholarly consensus under modern scholarship. This is a very important thing for you to be able to know. It should give you confidence in your conversations that when someone just off the cuff makes strange statements and challenges you, you should bring it up. You should get yourself a toolkit, and then you should let them say what they're going to say, and then direct them to the sources that have clearly contradicted their claims and shut their progress in the wrong direction completely down. Now, Habermas wrote an article recently, well, relatively recently, 2012, that appeared in Southeastern Theological Review. And it's called the Minimal Facts Approach. In this, as a faculty member at Liberty University, Habermas is discussing the work of another scholar by the name of Michael Lacona. And I believe he wrote the book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. He's doing much the same as Gary Habermas in the beginning, doing The Resurrection of Jesus, A Rational Inquiry. That's basically the book that arose out of the dissertation that Habermas put together when he was completing his doctorate at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Habermas has written a number of books since then, which I again recommend if you are apologetically geared in this direction. But suffice to say, both Habermas and Lacona pick out the conversion of Saul as a topic that deserves special mention. And I read directly from Habermas's article here. It says, Lacona's research on any number of issues is excellent and especially insightful, to be sure, but he excels in none of these to a greater extent than when he treats Paul's notion of the resurrection body. In other words, if resurrection is just a lie, then how is it that there could be such a robust discussion of the reality of resurrection in the New Testament. Habermas continues, Up until Lacona's work, the related scholarly treatment that often receives the most attention, and with good reason, was Robert Gundry's superb text Soma, which is the Greek word for body, in biblical theology, with emphasis on the Pauline anthropology. Though Gundry's treatment covers far more ground related to the larger question, it is also especially good when treating, quote, the soma in death and resurrection. Gundry's conclusions come substantially close to Lacona's on several key occasions, but in my opinion, Lacona's substantially longer analysis of Paul's notion of the nature of the resurrection body has not been bettered. So what you're getting here is the premier scholar of the resurrection of Jesus Christ giving you a very high recommendation for Lacona's discussion, his scholarly discussion and analysis of the nature of the resurrection body in Scripture. There's a couple of other things that we want to talk about. We've talked about three things, right? The, the death of Jesus Christ, particularly because of crucifixion. This gets rid of the, the fainting myth. We get rid of the idea that there was mass hallucination when people saw Jesus, and we convert those arguments into these were actual eyewitness accounts of real people in the first century telling us that they believed that they'd seen Jesus. And from their behavior, we know that they truly believed that. Number three, when we talk about Paul, not only did he confront the risen Christ or was confronted by the risen Christ, but he goes into a lengthy discussion of what exactly constitutes the idea of resurrection. And how can we be sure of that? And he gives substance to this. It's not just a myth, but he has gathered enough from his interaction with Christ to where he can actually specifically speak to what the nature of our resurrected bodies will be like. And he does this in 1 Corinthians 15. But in addition to those facts, there are others that they don't 
quite reached the measure. If you remember earlier, if your eyes aren't glazing over yet, I, I mentioned that there was a gradient of certainty that is applied in the secular disciplines, whether it's history, math, logic, etc. And in this case, there are a couple of other facts. I think he mentions four other ones that don't quite make the grade of the certainty of the first three. But here's a very important differentiation. They didn't make the grade because they're less certain. They didn't make the grade because there has not been enough scholarly scrutiny of these things to be able to establish the same level of consensus. And that's a very important differentiation. It just means that not enough people in the scholarly community have looked into it yet. And so while those that did typically will agree, there's a divergency between the opinions that gives it a little less certainty from the scholarly perspective, not the biblical one, of it being a reliable fact or what they call part of the bedrock events that make up the constellation from which we draw our conclusions. Lacona, according to Habermas, says he also investigates two other facts as to whether they, the facts, similarly deserve the designation of bedrock events. Number one's the conversion of James. Now, we talked about this a little bit, as I mentioned, the conversion of Paul. Here's someone who is skeptical, but beyond skeptical, he's actually a persecutor of the church. The conversion of James, the brother of Christ, is a very similar event where you have somebody who does not believe that Christ is Messiah. He does not believe in the authenticity of Christ's claims. And this is mentioned a number of times in Scripture as Jesus confronts his family or is confronted by them. It's very clear his brethren did not have a high opinion of the path that he was on. And then suddenly, post-resurrection, you find James in the upper room. Now, that is a pretty quick about-face. And for a Jewish individual who had just seen somebody who claimed to be the Messiah be put to death by the leadership in Jerusalem, that up to that point, they had at least been tacitly in agreement with. I find it highly unlikely, and not just me, but it, it is highly unlikely that such an individual would suddenly do an about-face and convert. And the fact that he does argues very strongly for the veracity of an event that has a polarizing tendency. And this goes back to when Simeon's prophesying in the temple. He says that he is going to be a divider and that some people are going to cling to him and some people are not. Now, in this instance, the conversion of James doesn't quite reach the level of scholarly consensus that the other three facts do, but it nonetheless is very strong in its argumentation to present as a historical fact. And there is scholarship that talks about this. Number two, the empty tomb. Again, don't, don't get up in arms about this. This is not saying it's not true. It just means that there's been less scrutiny of this. He does mention that those who have looked at the empty tomb, a large portion of them, a larger portion than not, have agreed that the tomb was empty for reasons other than natural ones. And that's a very big concession. So in other words, they're denying the idea that the body was stolen. Why? Because there's a number of things within the narrative that make that a ridiculous assertion. And we know that there was people being paid off to say that it was stolen. And we have no reason to doubt that that was being done. Because we also believe the eyewitness testimony of those who were saying what they said before that they'd seen him. So you keep going back to the bedrock of those three facts. The other things that have been asserted about these events, they crumble under scholarly consensus. Not only did James believe, and not only was he present in the upper room, but he was also somebody who became a prominent apostle, and the leader of the Jerusalem church. So this was not just some type of weak-kneed conversion, oh, I feel sorry because my brother was killed. This is something that stuck with him. He didn't only just go there for comfort and for grief to be with the people who were there, because there's plenty of evidence that he may not even have been 
at the crucifixion. Jesus's brothers, we know that Mary was there, his mother was there, but we don't hear any mention in the scripture of his brothers being there. So this stands as a very strong conversion case, and it doesn't seem like anyone who would know Christ to the degree that James did would convert for any reason other than such a polarizing event. One of the things that they point out in this analysis is that the majority scholarly view is that James' conversion was most likely due to his experience with the risen Jesus. That means the majority of scholars, not all of them, but the majority of them view this to be true. And you say, oh, well, of course, Christian scholars are going to say that. Hold your horses. Further, it says, concerning the scholarly popularity of such elements, quote, there is a significant heterogeneity. That means the mixed bag. That means it's a lot of different kinds of people. It says, within this group, that includes atheists, agnostics, cynics, revisionists, moderates, and conservatives. So if someone tries to throw out the idea, yeah, of course the Christian scholarly community is going to agree. This is not talking about people who hold the faith. This is talking about people who are actually scholars in the field of New Testament studies and the vast number of specificities of disciplines that that can come with. These people as scholars in their field, the ones who know the evidence and have considered the evidence more so than anyone else, they stake their careers on it. This is what they say. That stands very strongly. So I'll recap. The minimal facts approach that is being utilized by both Habermas and by Lacona deals with a nearly unanimous scholarly consensus for at least three of them, the crucifixion, the death of Christ by crucifixion, the witness of the disciples of his resurrection shortly after the claim of his resurrection, and three, the witness of Paul's conversion event at the point where he is confronted by the risen Christ. In addition to that, you have the conversion of James and the empty tomb, both of which, while not being completely unanimous in scholarly consensus, nonetheless hold a large majority of scholarship in agreement with them that is spread across a very wide spectrum of faith and non-faith. We're sort of coming to the end of this discussion of the scholarship, which some of you are probably thinking, oh, wow, glad, I'm glad about that. But I wanted to take this to that level to show you that you do not have to be ashamed of your faith. Not that you should have been even if there was no scholarly consensus, but there is plenty of support for this out there, which gives you a platform to go right up and challenge even the hard, most hardened skeptic and say, listen, this isn't just about me making something up or me believing a fairy tale. It's like, this is what scripture claims. And this is what those who have staked their career and research on have discovered. And therefore there's a bridge that says, this is evidence. You want evidence? This is evidence. Now they're going to do one of two things. You're either not going to accept the evidence because that was their problem from the start, or they're going to be willing to listen to you. And they're going to be willing to look into some of those resources. So don't give them those resources unless you've looked at them first so that you can help interact with them after the fact. And if you get stuck, well, that's why the college has an email address. Make sure you write to us at that or talk to your friends, talk to your pastor. They'll be able to point you in the same direction. Now, as Christians, we can point to a lot of other parts of Scripture that confirm these truths. But to be clear, that is not the argument that's being made. What is being said here is not that Scripture is not reliable, but rather that there are limited parts of Scripture that have been analyzed by a wide range of scholarship and consensus or agreement has been found regarding these passages. In other words, scholars of all backgrounds largely agree, and this gives you the tools to speak the language of skeptics as you're helping others who are from a scholastic or analytical perspective looking for hallmarks of truth, which are foundational facts. Habermas confirms this because Christians don't have to be intellectual. Some of you out there are thinking, oh, I've never gone to Bible college. I can never do this. That's not what's being said. 
Listen to what he says in his own words. He said, it should always be remembered that this, speaking of the minimal facts approach, is a apologetic strategy. And if you've taken any of our classes here about apologetics, you know that apologetics are about relationship and building them. Thus, it is not a prescription for how a given text should be approached in the original languages and translated, or how a systematic theology is developed, or how a sermon is written. In other words, the content you're going to come across while you're confronting this is going to be from a perspective that has nothing to do with how the Bible interprets itself. It's being done from a critical perspective. So it should never be concluded, Habermas continues, that the use of such methods in an apologetic context indicate a lack of trust in Scripture as a whole, or, say, the Gospels in particular. Nor should it cause others to question or doubt their beliefs. Thus, it should only be understood and utilized in its proper context. So as you sort of jump off the diving board, perhaps, into some of the things that we've discussed today, be aware of this, because there's going to be a statements that are made that are inevitably some type of concession to secular scholarship, but not for the purpose of removing any testimony of the scriptures or its truth. So what does scripture actually say on this? Probably one of the most important things that I learned in my undergraduate days was when writing a paper, in other words, I've put a thesis out there, some statement that I've made, and then I have to set about defending it properly. One of the questions that has to be considered for the purposes of making sure that your reader sees value in what it is that you're telling them is to ask the question, why should I care? We've talked about the resurrection. That's what the entire purpose of the podcast has been today. And you might think, well, why should I care that Habermas or Lacona or, you know, William Lane Craig, or you could list any given number of people, why should I care what they have said about this? Because as Christians, the Bible says that we ought to be all things to all men. We don't use cunning craftiness. We let the word of God speak for itself. But when it comes to a pattern about how to interest men in the truth of God, I want you to be referred to Paul's actions on Mars Hill, where he goes into this pagan center he quotes from their prophets, or their poets, as they would see it. He talks about the altar of the unknown God, and he makes a bridge from their culture directly to the preaching of the gospel. He said, the God that you don't even know, him it is that I declare unto you. And he begins to preach about God being the creator of the universe, and that he's close to every single person, even though in their blindness they have forsaken him. And he preaches Christ unto them, and it says many of them believed, one of which is, was called an Areopagite. He was somebody who was part of the council in that city, and he is converted. And so these are very erudite people who had every reason to deny Paul's claims, and yet because of his bridge from culture to the gospel that was used by God, to touch their hearts and to draw them in. That's an answer to the question, well, why should I care? You say, well, that's just not my style. Well, it isn't until you run into somebody who's a hardcore skeptic, and then you may find yourself grasping for straws. Put this in your back pocket, even if it's not sort of in your wheelhouse, because I promise you, if you are concerned about the conversion of souls, this is something you want in your toolbox. So coming directly to the witness of Scripture itself, what's all the ruckus about, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through verse 20. Paul says this, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? So some may say, well, if you're preaching Jesus Christ that he's resurrected, that's fine, but that doesn't have any effect on us. And Paul said, no, 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 you fundamentally misunderstood this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that his claims about resurrecting those who are in him are true. And he says in verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, 
then is Christ not risen? He's saying you can't have it both ways. You can't have a risen Christ and no future for believers. If you have no future for believers, then Christ is not risen because these two things are inextricably linked. The proof of the future resurrection of believers is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't even have to believe that because we need to. We believe it because it's true. We're not desperate to believe this. We believe it because it's an actual historical event. And we believe the claims of Christ because he fulfilled all that he said in resurrecting from the dead, which can be historically verified. Verse 14 says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. He said, We're just here playing church if this isn't true. That's how fundamental the understanding of the resurrection of Christ is to not just the present reality of being a Christian, but also the future reality that is promised in Scripture. Verse 15, he says, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. He said, it's not just the fact that we're wrong and that we're all playing church, it's that we are liars because we said that, that God actually raised Christ from the dead, and we've told you that. So now it's not just, well, we were wrong about this. It's, it's a malicious thing because none of the things that we have said would be true if it were not for this truth that is initially presented in the resurrection of Christ. So he restates his point again in verse 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, verse 17, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He would, he's saying, what is the point of making up a lie, placing our hope in it just for this life? In other words, we're just going to pretend. We're going to put our blinders on. We're going to say, Jesus is real. Jesus is real. Jesus rose from the dead. But we, we expect no profit from that ourselves. The future is that we are not raised. He said, well, then say goodbye to all your relatives permanently because you're never going to see them again. That means that all the truth about what the scriptures have said about what happens after death, all of that's false. And there's nothing but the void. We're of all men most miserable if these things are not true. But he doesn't say that that's the reason we believe them. We don't believe them because of how bad things would be if they weren't true. We believe them because the proof of Christ's resurrection is real. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become what? The first fruits of them that slept. So what he's saying is that Christ is just the first among many who are to come. And he, Christ speaks of this himself, where he says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he's not talking about people right there. He's talking about things, all things. In other words, the kingdom that has been given to me by my Father is coming. All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. And then he differentiates. And he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And he goes on to describe this idea that of all those things that God has given him, he is going to restore them. And just as he is going to restore all things that have been committed to him by the Father, he is also going to restore all those who come to him and what? He will raise them up at the last day. So when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, it speaks directly to the resurrection of the believer and our future hope, which again, we believe not because, well, it's just nice to have a pie in the sky theory and we don't want to deal with what really happens 
No, like we can deal with that if that were the case, just like everyone else does. But if what Christ says is true and it's been proven and it's a verifiable historical fact, then that's something that can begin someone's journey to faith, to be willing to accept the claims of Scripture about Christ. And I trust that as we've discussed these things, that it has given you an encouragement to delve into these aspects of your faith, not afraid that somebody somewhere is going to say something that's going to destroy your faith, but with the confidence that many have already, whether or not they're in the faith, confirmed the teachings of the Scripture, and that can be shared with others to help them come to Christ. Grateful for each of you who've taken the time to listen to this, and I trust that this will be an aid to you for many, many years to come. If you have any additional questions, feel free to write us calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. And once again, till next time, thank you for listening.